Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24 is where we're going to pick up tonight. This is part 4 of our walk through Colossians. Now, if you've been away or if you've missed one or more of the weeks, let me give you just a real quick summary of where we've been because where we're going requires a little bit of context. We began two Sundays ago with Paul saying, Howdy. Now, that's that's the southern version of what he said, but it's howdy. He says, howdy from Paul. I am a servant, a prisoner, a follower of Jesus Christ. And I just want you to know that grace and peace from God comes to you. And we talked about what that looks like to have the peace of God and the grace of God. And he then begins to pray for them and say, these are the things I'm praying. These are what I hope for you. And then, last Just three days ago, on Sunday morning, we looked at that beautiful passage where Paul says, let me give you just a glimpse. Let's just sort of of scratch the surface of our infinite big God that he is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, that he is God in every conceivable way. I love what one author says. He says that Jesus Christ was and is fully God, and God is fully Jesus. So whenever you wonder who God is, if you see a picture of God that makes you a little nervous, look at Jesus, and you will see the true fullness of who God is. And so that leads us into this next section, and here's why this is so important. The passage we're about to look at, there's a lot of things we could pull from it, but the one thread that weaves throughout is simply this. Suffering happens to us all. Can I get an amen from anyone who's over 25 years old? I mean, if we want to talk about suffering, what are some of the different ways that we suffer, by the way? We might say, well, we suffer. uh, How many of you have ever been stuck in traffic? Let's just start on boring, itty-bitty level suffering. Any of you ever been stuck in traffic and late to something? Go ahead, let's see some hands. This is the church version of calisthenics, one hand at a time, and you only do this, and then that's it, okay? So maybe we have that. Then we talk about maybe a little deeper suffering. How many of you have been in any relationship that had any challenges at all? Are, are any of you married? Are any of you with child? Are are any of you a member of a church? When we rub against one another, we deal with issues, don't we? And that's not because, you know, that's nothing necessarily wrong. It's just the reality of dealing with other people who aren't just like us, okay? So there sometimes comes some suffering there. And then, let's go a little bit further. Um, We then deal with the suffering of, well... Our physical bodies. Anyone in here have a body that, although it may be 60, 70, 80 years old, it functions like a high-performing 18-year-old's body? Anyone got that one in here? Look, when I was 18, I did not have a body that was like a high-performing 18-year-old body. So then we deal with the suffering of physical stuff, right? So you deal with, um, well, aches and pains. How many of you know when the weather's about to change because a part of your body tells you, oh, it's going to happen, your knees, your back, something starts to go off? I remember there's a couple in Nashville who, um, I was talking to the husband, I said, hey, let me show you this great weather app on my phone. This is a few years ago when I first got my phone and it had the, you know, the little weather stuff on it. So you could see it. He goes, Josh, 
I don't need your weather app. I've got one that lays in bed with me every night. He said, when the weather changes, my wife goes, oh, and she pokes me and he goes, well, honey, is that rain or is that, oh, no, no, that's, no, that's the temperature's changing poke. And so, I mean, she had it down because of her body. But our bodies don't work always the way that we wish they would. One of my best friends in the world, he went in for his fourth eye surgery for the past 12 months, Wayne Holt. And two of them kept him face down. How many of you have had to have that wonderful eye surgery where they put the bubble in and then you have to be face down for about like three weeks? So our bodies, we deal with suffering, right? Let's talk about not just people and not just our physical bodies, but how many of you have ever heard this one little word that we use in church called sin? How much of this world... And the suffering in this world is predicated on the bad, willful, wicked choices of others. And we can talk about very small things. Perhaps it's just the inconsiderate comment. It's the sniping words. It may be the gossipy lips. Or we hear about stories from around the world where because of the wicked heart of one person, a whole people group is wiped out. Did you know, family, that right now studies show that there are more Christian martyrs today than at any other time in human history? It's not a first century problem. Or what about this? How many of us, when we think about suffering, it, it may not even be some of those things, but we just talked about it. The world itself is broken. And so we have floods, we have hurricanes, we have, um, we have tsunamis, we have uh, earthquakes, we have famine. This is, by the way, told very clearly in Romans chapter 8, where the Bible where said, Paul tells us in Romans 8, that creation itself is groaning like a woman in labor. So is it a true statement that this world is full of suffering that, and if you live very long, you will experience it? Yeah, it is. So here's all I want us to do tonight. By the way, aren't you just glad you came to Wednesday night? Welcome to church. Suffering. I mean, we're just going to have a good time tonight. But here's what I want to do. I want to share with you what Paul says are the indispensable, essential Things we need to see and understand if we are going to get through what we are going through. Because here's the reality. As we suffer, we will either see our Savior or we will struggle and stumble. Suffering leads us to understanding, seeing, and loving our Savior or it leads us to stumbling and falling away. And so we want to be people who understand it. And here's something I just... Wednesday nights, I'm going to be a little more off the cuff, and I hope that's okay. Let me just be frank with you. I'm sick and tired of the bait and switch that churches do when it comes to this topic. Here's how the sales pitch goes. Daryl, do you want to have a happy life? Do you want to have all the money you could want, all the friends you could want? Do you want, like, everything to go great? And all? Here's all you, you just become a Christian. By the way, you say, oh, that's silly. No, that was on TV last night. You come to Christ and then everything is puppy dogs and rainbows. Everything is perfect. And then you come to Christ and what happens? Well, real world happens. 
And people begin to go, well, wait a minute, this isn't what I was told. And here's the thing, unless we teach what Scripture teaches, people will not come to Christ. And when they come to what they think of as Christ, they're not coming to Christ, they're coming to a comfort zone, something so that they can get out of pain and suffering. That is not the same thing as coming to Jesus. And so we're going to be real frank about this, because we've got to tell each other the truth about the world in which we live. Because here's the reality. If we don't tell the truth about what this world is really like, then when things go bad, we will not be prepared for it. And here's why this is so important. Our children, your grandchildren, many of you, many of you with your grandchildren, if they don't hear that this world is broken and to follow Christ does not give them a pass out of it, then when tough times come, they will bail. This is why it's so important. And how we handle suffering is going to give them a picture And the encouragement of how to walk through what they go through when they face what they're going through. This is why it's so important to us to get a grasp on this topic. Does this make sense? Yeah? No? We're not going to go over it again, so I hope it does. Here we go. Let's get into it. We're going to deal with verse 24. We're going to first see a real problem in this text. Then we're going to look at a general problem. And then I'm going to show you the principle and we'll kind of get through it. So here we go. The first problem is verse 24. And the breeze just pushed my page. Here we go. He says this. Now I rejoice. By the way, what do you think of when you hear the word rejoice, family? What's that? A party. Woo-woo. Yeah. Maybe balloon. But years ago, my wife, before we had children... Worked at Antioch with their Mother's Day Out program. She was over the four-year-olds, and one day they were going to have a big party, right? And, you know, all the kids, she's, she's so excited about it. They're going to have this great time. She comes in. She has, what, what cupcakes or something, I think? I, I would think it's a party. She had music. And, and so she comes in. She's like, hey, it's a party. And this one little girl goes, we need the balloons. It's not a party without the balloons. Okay, so, yes, party. You think of a party when you hear the word rejoice. Maybe you think of uh, some exuberance. Maybe if you think of things that would create rejoicing, you think of a new birth. Or you think about maybe that moment with your family all together at Christmas. Or maybe it's the moment where we see someone step into baptism and meet Jesus in the water. Maybe those are the things. But do you notice what Paul says? He says, now I rejoice in what was suffered. That's not what I think of when I think of rejoicing. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. Now here's the problem part of this text. So pay attention to this because this is one thing that uh, theologians have had a real headache over. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, one of the reasons that we are going through a book of the Bible instead of just using topics Although topical teaching is fine, and I'll do some of that. But the reason we'll spend most of our time going through books of the Bible is because it will force us to address passages that I would otherwise prefer not to deal with. But the scriptures, all of them are profitable. So we're going to get into this. Now notice what he says here. He says, I am filling up in myself, or I'm filling up what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. Now here's what this might sound like and what really kind of created some consternation with theologians is it sounds like he's saying what Jesus did on the cross was insufficient and now I have to fill up what is lacking 
in what Christ did on the cross. Now, here's why I bring this up. When you study the Bible, can, can I give you a couple Bible study hints here? And most of you know all these, but let me just give these to you. Maybe you're newer in faith, but let me give these to you. When you read the Bible, if you come to a thorny passage that is difficult to understand, Bible study 101, here's one of the rules. The Bible interprets the Bible. What I mean by that is this. If you come to a passage that seems complex or unclear, go to other parts of Scripture to try to understand the complex passage of Scripture. A very simple way of doing this is look at the context. So you look at the verse. If it doesn't make sense, okay. Look at the paragraph. Doesn't make sense? Chapter. Book. Genre. So, for instance, is this a letter? You're going to have a different style, and that'll help you understand things. Or is this maybe uh, poetic, like the Psalms? It has a different flow, and you look at the genre there. So figure out the genre. And then you can go to which testament does it sit? Is it the Old Testament or the New Testament? Because those are going to have some different features played out. And then you look at the whole Bible as a whole to see where does it fit, how does it work. But here's my point. What you do not do, and I know one in here will do this, but what you don't want to do is take one passage, pull it out, and make it the core or your doctrine to the exclusion of what the rest of the Bible actually teaches. This is how we get into some of the goofy teachings that we hear, right? By the way, every cult was began or started because someone said, ooh, I'll take just this and I'll just maybe take that and I'll ignore all the rest and then this is what we're going to live off of. So let me give you one example since I'm picking on people tonight. How many of you are familiar with the name Oral Roberts? A couple of you? He is known as the grandfather of what we often call the prosperity movement or prosperity gospel. Okay, now, there are very good people who hold or are part of churches that hold that view. I'm not, I'm not saying anything about them. Here's my point. Do you know how he came up with the prosperity gospel or what we now call it? Do you know how he came to that? In his own words, he explains that one day, every day rather, he sits down and he will read one verse of the Bible And he'll just think about it throughout the day. He'll meditate on it. That's a good thing to do, right? One day he was late, as he says it, he was late for a meeting. And so he quickly grabbed his Bible, threw it open. He said, whatever verse I land on, that's the verse I'll look at. And he fell on 3 John verse 2. Now, if you go there, and we're not going to do this tonight, but if you go there, John is writing and he basically says, I'm praying to God that you would have health, wealth, and prosperity. Those are basically the categories that he mentions. And Roberts goes, this is what God wants for all of us. One verse out of context, and that's the view now. So let me explain to you what what this verse seems to be saying. There's a lot of different interpretations. There are two that seem to be likely. I'll tell you the one that I think is the most likely. Uh, but I could be wrong, so I'll, I'll lay that here. Here's what I think this verse is talking about. In, a, in Jewish apocalyptic literature, by the way, we're going to go into the deep end of the pool tonight for a few minutes, so if this is too deep, you're welcome to stay over here with your floaty, draw on your books, whatever else, but okay. So in Jewish apocalyptic literature or literature that talked about the coming of the Messiah, the, the return of God, there was this teaching and belief that when between the time that we live and when Messiah returns, there would be a certain amount of suffering that the church or the chosen people of God would collectively experience. 
But God would limit the overall suffering to only a certain amount, almost like a large cup. It didn't matter where the suffering came from. Once it was full, that was it. And so the belief was, among many early Jewish people, was that there was a certain amount of suffering, and then Messiah would come. Now, do you want to know what they called the sufferings preceding the Messiah? They called it the woes of the Messiah. What is another word for Messiah, church? Christ. Another synonym for, for the woes of Messiah was the afflictions of Christ. This is what Paul's talking about here. So if Paul, taking a page from what was common within his culture, he is effectively saying, I am grateful that I took a portion of the suffering that otherwise could have been shared with other people. Do we know for a fact that's exactly what he's saying? No. But all the evidence seems to lead me more in that direction than some of the other interpretations. Now, here's the bigger thing. Regardless of where you may land on it, here's the big points. Paul is acknowledging what we've already said tonight, that suffering is a reality. In fact, look at the different words he uses here. Can we just kind of talk about this for a minute here? In chapter 25... He says, he uses the word, excuse me, in verse 24, he says that he suffers. Then in verse 29, do you notice this word that he uses? He says, to this end, I labor. And then he says, struggling. And then in verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 1, he also uses the word struggling. And so what he's doing here is he's saying, look, regardless of how you interpret what he says in verse 24, he's not saying that Jesus Christ's work was insufficient Please hear that. He is saying, though, that there is suffering, and I rejoice because in some way, what I'm suffering is to your benefit. So I want us to read through the rest of this passage, and I want to show you three ways to get through what you're going through. Just, just a few things, excuse me, four ways to help you get through what you're going through. So he continues, verse 25. I have become its servant, talking about the gospel of Jesus, By the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. By the way, that word mystery does not mean like something that Sherlock Holmes is having to figure out. Rather, mystery is talking about something that can only be known if God shows it to you. Because, okay, what's the mystery, family? Way back in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to a man named, do you know the father of the Israelite folk? Abraham. Comes to Abraham and he says, Abram, I'm going to start something new and I want to start with you. And so Abram is circumcised and in that one act he goes from being a Gentile to becoming the very first Jew. And then God begins to work through him his plan for all people. But Abram doesn't understand the fullness of this. And by the way, would Abram have known God's plan had God not come and shown him the mystery? No. God is the one who showed it to him. God then begins to work his plan throughout history, first in the Israelite nation, then Jesus, the apostles, and then it blows up and goes to all the Gentiles. And he's saying, I got great news. 
The mystery is now being shown to you. God, his big plan for thousands of years is now at hand. And so he says, The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, verse 27, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor, struggling with all my energy, which so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I love the way that the, the actually original language goes. It says that, instead, it says this way, it says, all treasure of wisdom and knowledge in him hidden. The emphasis is it's hidden in Jesus. I love that. Verse 4, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. You say, okay, how does that help me get through what I'm going through? Let me show you four things from this passage and we'll call it a night, okay? Number one, as you're trying to get through what you're going through, notice what Paul says, you are not alone. You're not alone, you're not alone, you're not alone. First off, who's going through this with us, church? If you are sitting there in Colossae and you get this letter and you're going through a difficult time as a follower of Jesus, who from in this letter is saying, I'm going through this with you? Paul. He's saying, I know what you're going through. I am struggling for you. I am laboring for you. I am suffering for you. By the way, have you noticed? I love this word labor. Well, let me back up. I don't really love labor. Anyone in here just loves sort of the hard manual labor of life? Just, I, I love to feel worn out, feel tired, and just... I see, I see you and I can talk afterward, okay? He says, I labor, I work. I am... It's hard. How many of you would say that some of the best things you've ever experienced in life come from the hardest things in life? Hands up, yeah. So my wife, she's the greatest gift, and I've said this before, you'll hear this a million times more. She's the greatest gift God has ever given me aside from my salvation. She's just a gift. But don't tell her this. Sometimes it's not easy being married, even to her. Don't tell her I said that. I want to go home tonight. And you know, okay, okay. Some days being married is challenging. Can I get an amen? Now, here's why. You take a man and a woman. By the way, are men and women the same, or are they different, church? Yeah, can you? Okay, God is brilliant. He's all those things. But really, it's like, I'm going to take someone who is radically different. Guys, you know, I'm not the most uh, observant about how things are really going in my marriage at times. Uh, and she is far more observant. Anyone in here, uh, 
maybe you don't see things as clearly as your wives. Don't, don't, don't just kind of, you know, you can wink at me right now and that's it. In our marriage, there are moments where there, that I've just done foolish things and I go, why are we not the same? Why are we not the same? Here's what's interesting. God takes two sinners who are radically different and then he says, I'm going to put you in a house. And then I'm going to like crank it down, almost like one of those pressure cookers. Have you ever seen a pressure cooker? Have you ever not quite got the lid completely secured on a pressure cooker? What happens to the lid of the pressure cooker if you don't get it down securely? And God goes, I'm going to just like put you both in there. I'm going to put the lid on. Good luck. This is marriage. And part of the reason is in marriage, God makes us more like him. I find out that I'm a selfish person. She finds out that she, she's perfect. So, I mean, I find out I'm selfish. And, and you just learn these things about yourselves. Okay, so here's the deal. Marriage, though, is tough, but it is the greatest gift I've ever received. It takes work for the things that matter to us most. I was thinking about it. Um, since coming to Chattanooga, I think I've gained a couple extra pounds. I always joke that if you want to learn how many years a preacher has been in ministry, just saw him in half and then count the rings and then you'll kind of know. So I think I've gained a little bit of weight. And here's what's interesting. It has taken no effort to gain weight. It comes very natural. Does anyone else have a hard time gaining weight? You just go, man, I try. I'm at, you know, I'm at five guys five days a week and I just can't. That's not how that works, is it? It's easy to gain the weight. It is what? Hard to lose it. It takes work. It is difficult. Paul is saying what he is doing takes work. It is effort. It is hard. He knows what you're going through. Number two, you notice in there, it's not just Paul who's going through it, but There are other Christians because he changes the pronouns here. He at first saying, I, 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 me, me, me. And then in verse 28, notice he changes it to we. We proclaim him. We admonish. We teach. He's saying, this isn't just my job, it's our job. And the reality is right now around the world, you and I have brothers and sisters who are suffering immensely for their faith. And it's not even just for their faith. I have a dear friend in Nashville, Miss Shirley. She's had cancer not once but twice. And she's one of these ladies. She works at Cracker Barrel part-time because she just loves to be around people. She's in her 70s, I think, 70s. She's not here, so don't tell her I said how old she was. Anyway, she's just a gem of a lady. She works there. She works also part-time at a hospital. She's a hostess and meets people, and she just loves people. And one of the things that I used to love is whenever I'd see her, she'd come up and I'd say, well, how are you doing today? And she's going through treatment at the time, and she'd be like... She goes, well, you know, it's been hard, but let me tell you what I'm learning about Jesus. And, 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 and I'd be like, well, how are things going? And she'd go, well, it's been hard, but let me tell you what Jesus let me do. I'd be like, what, Miss Shirley? And she'd say, well, when I was at Cracker Barrel, there was this other person who I could see the port from whatever was going on in them, and I got to share what was going on with me. And this person starts crying, and I start crying, we start praying, and it was just great time. And here's what I know. As we are going through things, other people are, and as other people are, we get to see that we are not Alone. This is why I've never understood how people get through what they're going through without the body of Christ. I remember my first job was as a youth intern in Texas. You say, youth intern? Yeah, I was supposed to be there for one year as an intern. 
Uh, and I thought I was going to be in youth ministry, but about six months in, I thought, this is just not going to work. I'm going to go to prison because I'm going to kill someone. This is just, I, I can't do youth ministry forever. And, but in that first year, it was a baptism by fire. Because at the tail end of that first year, one of our students uh, was kidnapped by a couple of her classmates, beaten, killed, and then uh, buried in a shallow grave. And I remember the moment when I was sitting there in the room, we found, news came back, we found the body. I'm with her mom, and she just crumples. And the whole church comes around her and loves on her. I don't know how you get through what you're going through on your own, and the good news is you don't have to. There are other people who know what you're going through, and they have suffered as well. In fact, it's not just Paul, it's not just others. Notice, it's Jesus Christ himself. Verse 20 Eight continues with this. He says, excuse me, 27 says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. Well, what's that mystery? It's that Christ is in you. Which means no matter where you go, Jesus is there as well. And not only that, Jesus knows what you're going through. Do you guys remember the first encounter Paul ever had with Jesus Christ? Where was Paul when he first met Jesus, church? on the road to Damascus and God knocked him off his donkey God had a conversation with him and do you remember what he said to him he said Paul Paul why do you persecute me now wait a minute Jesus hold on (laughs) I don't remember you being there when when Paul was holding the coats of the men who were stoning Stephen I don't remember hearing about you being in those homes with the followers when they were being arrested and drug out of their, fam- out of their homes in front of their children. I don't remember hearing. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. I know what's going on and whatever my children go through, I am going through it like them with them. Our Father is with us in our suffering. He knows it. Christ in you. So the first thing I think Paul would want us to know is when you're trying to get through what you're going through, know that you're not alone, that you don't do this on your own. Paul, other Christ followers, and Jesus Christ himself are with us in those moments. The second thing, though, that he says, I think pretty clearly here is that God can use your suffering. And again, I think we've heard this, that God can use our suffering Uh, But I want us just sort of to meditate on this idea for a moment here. This is what he says in verse 2 of chapter 2. We'll go back to verse 1 and read through. He says, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. Verse 2, my purpose is that they may be encouraged. That they may be encouraged. Paul is going through something. In fact, in verse 5, he says, Boy, I wish I could be with you in, in person, but I just can't. Where is Paul writing from, church? He's from prison. And by the way, this is not Camp Cupcake prison. There is no yard time. There is no cable TV. He is in prison. I mean, we're talking prison prison. And he says, but listen, I, I want you to know that 
while I'm here, my purpose is to be an encouragement to you that even though I'm suffering, God is going to use what I'm going through to help you, that God wants to use what you are going through to help one another. This is what Paul is talking about here when he says this. I was thinking about it the other day. I was reading a, a book by, by, by a man named John Piper, just a, a wonderful teacher and preacher of God's word. And he was telling a story about a missionary to an indigenous people group in India. It's real interesting. He was talking about how this indigenous missionary would go from village to village all over India. I mean, dozens and hundreds of miles. But he was very poor and so he had no shoes. And so as he traveled, he would be barefoot. And as he would travel, his feet would get blistered and bleed. And he just had a rough go of it, but he saw this one village that late at night he thought, well, I'll go to this one. But he's like, no, I'm tired. And, and he sort of battled with himself. Should I go? Should I not? He finally thought, well, I'll, I'll just go to this last one. He goes into the village. And as he's going in, he begins to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the villagers hate him. They, they just kind of blow up on him. They ridicule him. They run him out, threaten to beat him. And he, he leaves quickly. And he's really dejected, and he walks over to a tree, lays down, puts his head on one of the stumps or one of the roots right there. And as he falls asleep, a few minutes later, he's woken to the sound of voices. He wakes up, and he is surrounded by the village. And he goes, oh, no, what are they going to do to me now? And one of the men say, we want to apologize to you. Apologize. He said, yeah, we... We are so sorry for the way we treated you. We came out to inspect you while you were laying to decide what to do with you. And he saw the reason they were out there. They had other implements and instruments with them. But he said, we then noticed that you had bloody feet. That you had hurting feet and that you still came to our village. We realized that you are a holy man. What do you have to tell us from this God of yours? That God uses us in our suffering. How many of you, if you think back on it for just a moment here, think about the people who have had the greatest impact on your life spiritually. Would you say that those are the people who've had the easiest lives or the ones who have had the lives that have fallen apart at moments? For us, the people that have made the greatest impact are those who have faced challenges, who've suffered, and yet, as Job says, yet I still will praise him. So, first thing, you don't go through alone. Number two, God can use what you're going through. And number two, number three, uh, and this is one that really kind of gives me hope, is that God can change you. And I'm really excited about this one because it turns out that the road to who God has called us to be is going to take us right through suffering. How many of you are familiar with the old, uh, wonderful book, The Pilgrim's Progress? How many of you have read The Pilgrim's Progress or listened to it on tape? How many of you have no idea what I'm talking about right now with The Pilgrim's Progress? Okay, this is a fantastic book. In fact, just a little factoid. Second only to the Bible. The Pilgrim's Progress has been translated, or excuse me, copied in English more than any other book other than for the Bible. But in it, it tells a story, it's a fictitious tale, but it tells the story of a man named Christian who leaves his hometown of destruction and he begins the journey to find this new homeland. 
And he goes through beautiful moments, but he also goes through some very scary ones. In fact, the very last moment, as he sees the city beautiful, gleaming and gorgeous, he sees this river, and it's shallow at first, but he begins to walk through it. And as he does, the current picks up, he begins to stumble and fall. And he gets terrified and he begins to wonder what's going to happen to him. And as he is just about to sink, he is pulled through the other side. And we are told that he becomes this gleaming, brilliant person who he was always meant to be. In a word, he has been made perfect. Do you notice the word that Paul uses here? In verse 27, he says this. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect. That word perfect has bothered me a lot over the past few weeks. How many of you wish you were just absolutely perfect? Can I see hands? Anyone in here wish they were perfect? Some of you are going, I'm already there. I don't need to raise my hand. Okay, fair enough. Perfect. When we think of perfect, our problem is when we hear this word, we think of it as a bunch of Gentiles, a bunch of Greeks. To the Greek, perfection is to be morally upright in every way, to have no flaw. That is not the way that the Jewish people heard this word. That is not the way Paul used this word. It is true, you and I will not be perfect in our moral sense this side of heaven. There are still days that we sin. You say, well, wait a minute. Are you sure? Yes, read 1 John. When John says, anyone who says he's without sin is what? A liar. We are all sinners still. But we're saved by a gracious Savior. But Paul, when he uses this word perfect, he's not talking about being without sin because we're all going to struggle still, but he's, he's using it in the sense that the Jews would have understood it. Perfect is to be one who fulfills the purpose for which he or she is created. That's perfection. I almost brought it tonight. One of the, my favorite gifts I've ever received, actually, there's two, probably my two favorite gifts, one of them is this, um, it's, a, it's just a little Coke cooler, but it's by a company named Yeti. How many of you know Yeti? <laughs> it's glorious. You get a little can of Coke. Now, I don't drink Coke often, but when I do, I put it in my Yeti. You put it in, you twist on the lid, and this thing is like magic. If whatever, I mean, whatever temperature it is when you first open it, it's that all the way down to the last sip. It's incredible, Jack. I love it. And it's just, it's a great thing. Now, here's the deal. If I were to say the Yeti canister is perfect, I'm not saying it is without sin or it's morally upright or perfect. I would be meaning rather it fulfills the purpose for which it was created. Let me tell you another thing that I love. A number of years ago, my wife, we were married just a few years, she noticed that in the middle of the night, I I would get an itchy back. I don't mean to be too personal here, but my back would just sort of itch. So I'd get up, I'd walk over. How many of you remember the Jungle Book, the old Disney movie? Anyone in here remember Jungle? Okay, you remember Baloo the bear? What does he do when he gets an itchy back? He'd kind of do this little number on a tree, right? 
So I'd go over to our door frame and I'd just kind of do that little number. And I don't know if it annoyed or just amused her enough because finally at Christmas one year, she got me a back scratcher. So you want to know where that little thing sits every night? Next to the bed. In the middle of the night, get an itchy back, just lay it down, back to sleep. It is the perfect back scratcher. Not because it is morally perfect, but because it fulfills the purpose for which it was created. You want to know what a perfect Christian is? It is one who is fulfilling the purpose for which he or she is created. This is why Paul is able to say, I've got a vision, I've got a goal, I've got a purpose, and my vision, my purpose, my goal, given to me by God, not decided upon by myself, is that I would encourage and present to God you, perfect in Christ. You say, Paul, that's an incredibly high goal. How are you ever going to do that? Easy. If I can convince you to fulfill the purpose for which you were created. You say, well, what is that purpose? Well, we're given that purpose in the previous chapter, chapter 1, where he says, we were created by God, for God. We are here to give honor to God. We're given that purpose in Matthew 28. Do you remember what Jesus tells his followers? Go and make what? Disciples. You make disciples. You share with them the goodness of God. You give them a picture for what it means to walk in the kingdom of God, to trust God in all things, in all ways, to be obedient to God even when it means perhaps our death. This is what it means. And he says, so listen, I am struggling. I am striving. I am laboring because in so doing, I will help you become who God has called you to be. Oh, and by the way, it is how I can be who God has created me to be as well. There are some things that I will never be able to do that I was designed to do if I'm unwilling to go through the difficult moments of life. How many of you have already made it through the parenting years? Can I just see hands? If you're already, you're you're past parenting, maybe you've got grandkids. What's that? Uh, Okay, Let me, let me rephrase that. How many of you have successfully launched your children out of the nest? Is that, is that better? Some of you are going, they came back like a boomerang. I can't get them out. They just keep coming right. All right, we'll talk later. How, how many of you know that it's easy to be a passive parent? That it's far easier to not have the hard conversations? It's far easier when you're so bone tired to not say, let's have a Bible study before you go to bed. It is far easier not to talk about scripture and Christ and how they used their relationship with God and where they were that day. I mean, it's so much easier to not do those things. But to fulfill the purpose for which we were created means that we will do the hard things and sometimes that means suffering. My sweet wife, every morning she's up at about 5.15, 5.30 so that way she can have time with God before she then gets up and begins caring for the kids and caring for the family, going through the day. And then she tries to get in bed by 9, 9.30 every night. Usually it's closer to 10.30, 11 or 11.30. And the next day, same thing. It is difficult, but it is worth it. Worth it. She is a perfect Mother, because she is fulfilling the purpose for which she was created. This is what it means. So, to get through what you're going through, number one, you're not alone. Number two, 
God is going to use you. And number three, God can change you. And finally, and this is the one that we're going to end on tonight, notice what he says here in verse 27. Your suffering will one day come to an end. He says, Christ in you, the hope of what, church? The hope of glory. Now, look, look if we were in a... Um, well, let's just put it this way. I have a friend who's a preacher of an African-American church, and I love going to visit because when they say glory, it's glory. I mean, they've got, they've got the soul within. If I were in that church right now, this is where I'd pull out a hanky, I'd wipe the sweat off my brow, and we get down to business because here's the good news. You have a hope that this world is not the end of the story. Can you imagine how depressing it would be if this was the end of our story, family? That you fight, you strive, you die, and you're worm food. But that is not the end of the story. Christ in you, the hope, the expectation of glory, of being with him. There's an old statement throughout the early centuries of the church. We'll end on this. It says that the early Christians would carry their dead as in victory. Because when the moment comes, when this is over, you understand we have a few years to work hard and then it's done and then it is absolutely a party for eternity. And in that moment, there is coming a moment with whatever you're dealing with. And friend, I don't know what you're facing. Some of you, you're dealing with unbelievable health issues and I don't know what that's like. I'm sorry. Some of you are dealing with relationship struggles and challenges. You're dealing with all sorts of things. Here's the good news. You continue to labor because one day it's coming to an end. And when you close your eyes on this side, you will open your eyes. And the first eyes you'll see will be your Savior saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. And until that day... Let's keep our eyes toward him, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that is how Paul says, this is how you get through what you're going through. So let's pray and let's talk to this father and we'll be done. Lord, I thank you that you hear us when we pray, that you know us more deeply than we know ourselves. That you're with us in our struggles, that you're with us in the good times, that you're with us in those tough times. We thank you that As a friend of mine often says, nothing is wasted with you. But even the tough times, you had this magical ability to take the bad things and make them into God things that change us. I pray that you'll be with my friends tonight, be with my family. Help them with what they're going through. Lord, I pray for those in here who are just in pain because of their bodies. I pray that you will provide them relief in this life And comfort to know that in the next life they will shed this body. They will be given a perfect one. And they will be able to run. They will be able to dance. They will be able to do things and enjoy life in ways that we have never even imagined here. Lord, I pray for our family members here who are just hanging on in relationships by the skin of their teeth. I pray that you will use their willingness to stay in the game to change the lives of those around them and to remember that there's coming a day that all the static intention between us and relationships, it will be gone and we'll know each other perfectly and know you better and perfectly as well. Father, we pray that you will use what we're going through and that those who are far from you will see how we, like Paul, rejoice knowing that you're using what's happening in us 
And they'll say, something's just bizarre about you. But I want to know more. We pray that more will come to know Christ as a result. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.